Hello, I'm Muriel, and I love true crime. I'm Nick, and I am not a fan. Thank you for joining us. Each week, I force Nick to listen to me tell him a story of a true crime. Welcome to Muriel's Murders. Today, we bring you part two of our series based on Jerry Bledsoe's New York Times bestselling book, Bitter Blood. For part two, we've got a horrible, horrible divorce, suspected espionage in Taiwan, and the full story of vitamin pioneer Dr. Frederick Klenner, and uh-huh. our very first blush of cousin love. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, just, just a blush. Uh, just a little just rouge. A little hello. <laughs> All right. How's how's it going? <laughs> Pretty good. Thanks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, we're cousins and we're in love? Great. And as you settle into part two of this uh, epic Muriel's Murder story, if, if you find yourself loving this podcast, please support us on Patreon. That's right. Or share it with your mama. Yep. All right. This is a true story involving murder, violence, drugs, adult themes, etc. So if any listeners are like Nick and they don't want to hear about those kind of things... Go listen to a different podcast. We're going to joke. We might even curse. So hold on to your britches. Or if you hate that kind of thing, turn us off. All right, Nikki. Are you ready to hear this story? No. Okay. Let's get started. For this series, we are re-instituting. We are bringing back one of my favorite things about this series The good old Nick Casolini recap. Was he paying attention to what I said last time? (laughs) Who knows? Well, this is part two. So if you're just jumping in now, go back and listen to part one first. But part one was a Muriel fever dream greatest hits of all the family drama of an old school fancy Southern family that eventually produced two cousins who hook up romantically and end up exploding in a Chevy blazer filled with weapons, cash, religious stuff, and too many vitamins in the year 1985. Muriel is being very sneaky about who these cousins are, so there's a lot of mystery. We don't know how they're going to pop up out of all the cast of characters from part one. We started with a family in North Carolina back in the day who produced nine overachieving children, and part one ended with Susie, one of the granddaughters of that family, marrying a dentist named Tom and moving out of her southern comfort zone and into (laughs) Albuquerque, New Mexico, where her husband is going into business with Italian I'm Italian, and Muriel <laughs> shot me a pair of scandalous gossip eyes when she said that part. You know what I mean? She also said that this was the move that ignited the fuse, eventually leading to the exploding lover cousins. All right. That's a good recap. I'm so good at the recaps. I know. It's so funny you picked up on my uh, Italian thing. There's going to be more. So Good. <laughs> <laughs> All right, part two starts now. So now we are in Albuquerque, New Mexico, Mm -hmm. and Susie Sharp Newsom Lynch is not impressed. (laughs) This wasn't a genteel old money town. Uh People were wearing flannels and jeans. They're rough around the edges. And they were, quote, this is from Susie, 
Too many Mexicans and Indians. Nice. Okay, uh, great. Love that, this girl. So after... Uh, that good old racism. She really she made just, sure she brought that with her. She just has to make sure she just gets it in there. Uh-huh. So after a year, Susie began complaining to neighbors and friends, right? Mm-hmm. New Mexico has no culture. The mm. museums in Albuquerque were trash. The mm-hmm. university sucked. No orchestras. The closest opera was in freaking Santa Fe, Right. <laughs> And what was even more unforgivable. How how often was she really going to the opera? That's what I'm trying to say. I don't know, but apparently. I didn't realize she was so passionate about uh, very quality museums at this point in her life. I don't know. She doesn't really talk about it earlier. Well, anyways. Anyways. Uh, But what was even more unforgettable. Uh Sorry. What was even more unforgivable Uh was no one in Albuquerque knew about her fancy Aunt Judge Susie, right? (laughs) People were just treating her like she was just a normal old milk dud when she's (laughs) special. Tom Lynch, her husband Uh or ex-husband, later said he thought Susie was unhappy because she had actually never had to make friends using her personality before. Uh-huh. Which that's I just, a mean ass thing I to think say. that's such a burn. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds good. You're just unhappy because now people have to like you because of who and what you actually are. I know. Okay. So like basically what Tom said mm-hmm. is up until this point, Susie just sort of self-sorted her friendships based on her family name and like the family names of others. Mm-hmm. And that was most of her identity. But in Albuquerque, people were like, what are you talking about, man? We don't know who your aunt is, right? Uh, so, <laughs> and, oh, she's a judge. Oh, that's cool. I guess, right? My my aunt is like works at a farm. You Wait, know what hold I mean? on, time out. Didn't what? you say in the first part that the uh, one of the people dead in the blazer there was related to this a fancy judge? Mm-hmm. Is Susie the one that ends up dead in the blazer? Well, technically everyone we're talking about so far is related to the fancy judge. Oh, that's true. They're all cousins. (laughs) Damn it. Okay. I mean, it's not that much of a secret. I'm just trying to do something kind of creative, Nick. (laughs) He's like, I don't think this makes sense. Well, you know what? Go listen to a different podcast. (laughs) All right. So. (laughs) I wish I could. Okay. Susie Mm -hmm. was kind of. The one thing Susie was was like uncompromising in her sense of specialness. Yeah. So Tom said like she couldn't really adjust to meet people halfway, right? So she's like, I'm fancy, you're not. I need a friend, so I'm going to be a little less uptight, mm-hmm. right? He's like, she just couldn't really do that because she felt she was too special to compromise who she was. So she didn't want to not, you know, act like a jerk if she felt like it because her instincts were correct. So yeah. funny. I just think I have arguments with my dad about this kind of stuff. He's yeah. always like, I'm not the problem. You're the problem. And I'm like, boy, you are the problem. Uh, okay. Fighting with him right now. Okay. <laughs> but basically, in a nutshell, Susie was backed into a social corner in Albuquerque, right? Yeah. Because she's so special, she thinks she should have all the friends. Right. But because of the way she's acting, she has none of the friends. <laughs> uh, so she just kind of got back into a corner uh-huh. and resorted to general hostility. Gotcha. She doubled down on her perception of class and social order. She started calling Albuquerque lower class. That's how she talked about it all the time. Mm. And then she started calling all the people who lived there turkeys. And in short order, Tom, the man who dragged her to this wasteland, 
joined the rank of the turkeys. Mm -hmm. To Susie's deep disappointment, her tall, handsome, sandy-haired, aspiring doctor was now a dentist who apparently loved the stupid outdoors. (laughs) Tom loved hunting, fishing, and camping, which was basically like kryptonite to Susie. Uh, Fishing poles made her want to throw herself into the ocean. One time, Tom (laughs) trained for a marathon, and Susie told him, People who run for fun are crazy, and athletes are just a bunch of sweaty, overrated turkeys. (laughs) She's really dropping that turkey bomb. Uh, Susie occupied her time with alternating between (laughs) complaining, just Uh generally, and then also she was known to brag about how awful she was to Dolores, Tom Lynch's mother, her mother-in-law. She would really lead with that with people? She just thought it made her look really cool. (laughs) Uh, she would throw the presents that Dolores sent to the boys just straight into the trash. Oh, they got kids at this point. Yeah, because they have yeah. those two little boys. Right. Um, without even opening them. And she banned Dolores and Chuck, her father-in-law, from seeing the kids. So they never visited and she was just generally being terrible. Uh, okay. By year three in Albuquerque, Susie was just pretty much a raging butthole. She was mean as a snake. She was sarcastic and mean-spirited to Tom and the kids and any friends that she happened to sort of like make or neighbors. Yeah, um, just like actually, accidental friendly acquaintances. Right. decides to be mean to them. And actually, kind of hilariously, she was becoming a lot like Dolores Lynch in yeah, some ways. Yeah, it sounds like it. Yeah. Yeah. She's old school, biting mad childhood Susie was rearing her head. She wanted to control everything. And when denied, she'd rage, scream, slam doors, you know, like do the whole nine. Mm -hmm. And, you know, aside from that, for Tom, things weren't working out great in his professional life, right? In addition to having a partner who would rage so hard, the neighbors could hear her from like across their grassy lots. We're not talking in an apartment building, yeah, right? Yeah. His dental practice was really slow building. Mm. So while his parents were wealthy, Tom Lynch was not. And he had poured all of his money into the startup costs of building his practice and just wasn't really seeing a solid return. So forced with the sledgehammer of life, in a tanking marriage, Tom retreated. He got quiet, just like his father, Chuck, who now, if we remember, where does he live? In the basement yes. with three squares meals a day left by his wife at the top stairs of the basement. Yes. And he's not allowed to go upstairs. He's not allowed to go upstairs. So he kind of followed mm. this lead, but instead of sitting in the basement, he just started spending less and less time at home he would just go out camping alone basically mm-hmm. and Susie in turn became more isolated and bitter and the whole thing just started to spiral yeah in the spring of 1978 to help with fi- family finances and probably also her mental health Susie decided to get a job as a receptionist at this company that produced TV commercials. And she was really quickly promoted to production coordinator. Um, She also started a hobby. She rekindled an interest in Chinese culture and started studying Mandarin. Um, But it it just didn't really help. The house was always tense. Uh The marriage was falling apart. Um, Tom refused to take an interest in anything that Susie liked. Uh, Susie did the same. And they... They couldn't find it in themselves to even speak to one another. Oh, yeah, okay. Right. Right. Uh, Christmas 1978, Susie brought the kids to her parents' house without Tom and just kind of refused to acknowledge 
that at all. <laughs> so they're like, what? Where's you're, your husband? She's what, like, what has, where uh, is Tom? My ears don't work. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Basically, potatoes. not only did she literally refuse to talk about Tom, she flat out refused to talk at all to some relatives who were there at Christmas. She just kind of blanked everybody. It was very curt, tight-lipped with everyone else. And all she'd say if anybody asked her mm-hmm. was just that Dolores was evil and wouldn't leave the family alone. But here she is. She's back with her Southern people as she thinks are so fancy. And she's, she's not cool with them either now. Yeah, there's... Okay, she's burning every bridge. Yes, she's burning every bridge. So after Christmas, Susie came back to New Mexico and she asks Tom for a, a divorce with the intention of moving back to North Carolina. But Tom wanted to work things out. He, he wanted her to stay. At the time, he said it was like blindsiding to him, even though the marriage was terrible because he just didn't have... An idea of what a marriage was supposed to be. It was like, I was young and dumb. Yeah. I was like barely 20. And now we're doing exactly what my parents are doing. So it seems like we're kind of killing it. Right. It's like he, and it never occurred to him that, that marrying someone he didn't really know would be an issue or like <laughs> to keep a marriage alive. You have to do things like talk. That stuff. <laughs> uh, I mean, it sounds like Susie was literally the worst, but yeah. I don't think. Tom comes out of this as husband of the year. Like, right, right. if you take all of the terrible stuff out of Susie's whole personality, uh-huh. like, first he moves Susie to his mom's home state who hated her, and then he let his mommy pick out her apartment, and then unilaterally made the decision to move her to a place that she hated, Albuquerque, far away from her family. She's got two tiny kids, and then he refused like totally flat out refused to do anything she was interested in Mm -hmm. while she was isolated as a stay-at-home mom. So like his best effort was to offer to do the outdoorsy things that he liked and that, you know, he knew she hated. And then when she didn't want to do it, he was just like, whoop, I don't know. And just (laughs) left her at home with the kids while he went camping. You know, I got to take a hike. Bye. It doesn't sound, you know, I mean, I think. And they weren't even financially stable. It's like not like living in New Mexico is helping his career. Right. He just liked it because of camping. You know what I mean? So is he getting robbed by the two Italian guys that said we're go- let's go into business with each other? No, but there's a lot of mafia coming up. Okay, good. <laughs> Real or imaginary? Okay. okay. <laughs> um, I mean, nothing excuses mm-hmm. like Susie, right? Like just screaming throwing things, being awful and abusive, which we'll see is going to start to escalate in a really disturbing way. With the kids? Yeah. But, you know, someone who just sits there and shrugs and leaves his kid alone with someone acting that erratic to go camping kind of gets on my nerves. (laughs) Right. You know what I mean? I don't know. I was like reading this and I was like, God damn. (laughs) Yeah. Anyway. uh, So the dysfunction continued. And of course... The kids picked up on Susie's baggage and crappy behavior. So basically, because she got a job, they hired this woman, Laura Gilliam, to babysit while Susie was working. And their oldest son, John, just sort of snapped a lot like how she used to snap as a child. Right. So he started throwing like wild screaming tantrums every time Susie tried to leave for work. And Susie was known to everyone as this very like rigid and controlling mom with this very obvious favoritism towards her two-year-old son, Jim, the mm-hmm. youngest, mm-hmm. because he looked the most like a sharp and John looked just like his dad. Yeah, And the babysitter really picked up on that. Like sometimes Laura Gilliam would say she'd show up to babysit only to be told John, who was barely five years old, was 
to stay locked in his room all day alone as a punishment for like something he had done that morning. Mm -hmm. And then in response, John would just lose it. He'd scream, break stuff. He would smear poop on the walls, just like destroy the room. And then, you know, Jim, who was kind of the more peaceful of the two kids in 1979, Jim was around three when he started randomly sticking objects in his eyes. So they were always red and damaged. He's like doing, it's a little kid and he's just doing this to himself. Wow. Um, Is that a, the, diagnosable like affliction? What is that? I don't know. I mean, the, the book didn't really talk about it. I mean, but he was hurting himself and it's like this compulsive thing he's doing. Whoa. He did it enough that he was like always at the optometrist's office. Mm. And then where Susie was like this known menace to everyone in the office. Uh, just right. You know, doing okay. what she does. Mm-hmm. Um, both of the boys started like regressing and wetting the bed at night uh, between John and Jim everything got so bad that Susie hired a child psychologist to see if she could get, you know, something right. better. <laughs> yeah. It's like, well, why don't you stop acting like an insane person and like treat your kids better? Right. And she was, she was the one that gave her brother a stomach ulcer at five. Yeah. She's out here giving everybody a stomach ulcer. Damn. <laughs> she gave me a stomach ulcer. <laughs> stressing me out. Uh, but nothing really calmed mm. the household. And, you know, soon, of course, a wit- well, I don't know if this is, of course, a neighbor witnessed Susie beating the family dog with a plastic baseball bat. Like, they see her doing violent things. And eventually, Susie graduated to just slapping the boys around and leaving marks, which people noticed, yeah. like neighbors noticed, mm. but kind of were like, that's your business. And it was something at the time that they ignored. Right. And that Tom was apparently oblivious to. It didn't seem like an issue. I well, guess. he's too busy hiking. You know, he's got a mountain to climb. He's fit. You know, he's fishing. In the spring of 1979, Tom came home to find his five-year-old son, John, holding his arm in a strange way. So he took John's shirt off to find he had a broken arm, like a clearly broken arm. Uh So John told his dad he broke it jumping up and down on the babysitter's bed. So without any further investigation, Tom took John to the hospital and had the arm set. He didn't even talk to the babysitter, Laura Gilliam, like, I don't know, to check in yeah. with the person who sent his kid home with a visibly broken arm. Right. Didn't check with her. Because if he had bothered to call her and talk to her, he would have found out that she never lets the boys in her bedroom. Mm-hmm. Like a like a very responsible babysitter? Basically, her cu- husband uh-huh. worked nights. They yeah. had one bed and one yeah. bedroom. So he slept during the day in the bedroom, and that was completely off limits to the boys. And second, because of the bedwetting, Laura had purchased these little washable pallets for the kids to sleep on that had, like, no bounce factor. They mm-hmm. were just something you roll out on the floor. So there's no way that story would have made any sense. All right. So when Susie showed up to Laura Gilliam's house to drop the boys off and John was in a cast, Laura, who didn't know anything about what John had been saying, wasn't surprised, right? She'd noticed the boys were showing up more and more with bloody noses and bruises. But Susie always had an explanation for why the son she obviously disliked, who had behavioral problems and issues peeing the bed, was constantly injured, right? So no need to further investigate Mm -hmm. or talk to the dad, right? Mm -hmm. But that same spring, when John was still in a cast, Laura Gilliam finally saw a red flag when she found a huge kind of squishy knot on the side of three-year-old Jim's head. It looked bad, 
And Laura called Susie. Susie had just dropped the boys off. She called Susie at work. She said, you need to turn around, come back and pick up Jim and take him to the hospital. Mm -hmm. He has an injury. So Susie turns around. She comes back right away. And she tells the babysitter, oh, Jim fell while he was jumping on the bed. Again, another Mm -hmm. bed injury. Mm -hmm. And then she just didn't notice it was that bad. She said, I'll take you to the hospital. I'll take him to the hospital as soon as possible. Mm -hmm. Instead... Susie dropped the boys off at her friend's Irene's house. So she dropped the boys off and she just set, started complaining that her babysitter had canceled last minute and she had to put the boys somewhere. So Irene watches the boys all day and then brings them home. And later that night, when everyone's home, Tom notices not only this huge bump on his three-year-old's head, but also there's a black eye forming in, on Jim's face. God damn. So... Susie then tells Tom that John, the older kid, had pushed his brother off the bed at the babysitter's house. And Tom, once again, was apparently like, oh, wow, beds are dangerous. And just kind of without question, takes his other son to the hospital to get checked up, like for bad injuries for the second time that spring. Yeah. And the head injury was bad enough that doctors wanted to keep Jim overnight for observation for concussion. But the other thing is, is they're saying this is clearly doesn't look like an injury that would come from an accident, like an accident. Uh-huh. This seems like something that he someone has done. Right. Yeah. And as soon as the doctors say that, both Susie and Tom get totally irate at the even the suggestion that something mm-hmm. like that would happen. Mm-hmm. Even one of his friends, one of Tom's friends who worked at the hospital, pulled Tom aside and said, hey, man, it really looks like. This boy has been punched with a closed fist. Yeah. But Tom was like, there's no way. Uh And for me, I'm like, at the very least, wouldn't you be worried your babysitter was doing this? Yeah. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, Or a bully kid or anything. Like why the flat denial? But they just basically shut down. Well, you know why the flat denial. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So they shut down everything. But this time... Things almost unraveled when Irene heard about this story, right? She she hears that Tom's going around saying Jim had been at the hospital and that uh, Jim had hit his head at the babysitter. So Irene knew something was up, right? Susie yeah. had told her the babysitter had canceled. The only person that the boys were with were her all day. And yeah. she knows that they didn't fall and hit their head. Nobody yeah. fell off of bed. So she doesn't like the insinuation, but also it's like now these stories are falling apart. So she confronts Susie, who tells her, oh, the doctors think it's the babysitter is abusing our child. And mm-hmm. that's and that's what's going on. Um, but at this point, Irene knew she was totally full of crap. The pieces are coming together. And Irene was positive. She knew that Susie had hit this little boy. Yeah. Unfortunately, Irene decided not to tell Tom or anyone else who could help the boys out of like a sense of propriety. Uh-huh. Like, right. She, she doesn't want to be rude. The yeah, to, to be rude Susie. about it. Yeah. And, you know, Susie has zero friends. She's finally Susie's first friend right. in Albuquerque. She doesn't want to go ruining that. Right. So a few days after Jen's hospitalization, Susie and Tom were called back to the hospital. And the doctors wanted to have a meeting about Jim's injuries being clearly from some sort of abuse and not uh-huh. a fall yeah. and the pattern of injuries to both the boys from that spring. So both Tom and Susie like refused to hear it out and they left in this indignant huff. And after they left the hospital reported them to police for suspected child abuse. And yeah. there was an investigated investigation opened 
um, but it was never completed. It just kind of fizzled out. Uh-huh. So in July, the kids are the kid heals though. Big knot on your head. That's scary. Yeah, the he, kid heals, he heals from that. Yeah. Ugh. So a few months later, in July of 1979, Susie decides to go back to North Carolina for a quote unquote visit, with her intention being to leave with the boys permanently. Something that characteristically she and Tom didn't talk about but kind of understood Mm -hmm. so tom let his strange acting wife take his recently injured boys who had unexplained bed jumping incidents leave with no return date and a week after they left susie called to say they wouldn't be coming back Mm -hmm. so susie told her family that tom had been taking some kind of medication that had really drastically changed his personality and that he had asked her to leave and dissolve the marriage. And that was the only kind of official line that Susie said. Susie's famous aunt, Judge Susie, hooked her up with a great lawyer who drew up a separation agreement heavily favoring Susie and giving her full custody of the kids. There was a beat where she didn't send it, though. She kind of did a little bit of a 180. So Susie decided to drive up to New Mexico alone under the pretense of retrieving her things, but maybe in her mind get an apology from Tom and a reconciliation. Mm -hmm. Instead, Tom gave her a super icy cold shoulder. He told her to take whatever you want from the house and be gone by the time I get back from work. Neighbors heard her screaming and breaking stuff the entire time Tom was away. (laughs) And then when she was packed up, you know, they both, Susie drove ahead and Tom followed in a U-Haul with all of Susie's fancy heirloom furniture to North Carolina. So he spent a couple days with the kids at the Sharp family home while Susie kind of holed up somewhere. And afterwards, he signed the separation agreement, giving full custody to Susie. And this would be the last time he saw his kids in two years. Oh. (sighs) (laughs) (laughs) So. Uh, Just (laughs) good old Tom. (laughs) That was unpleasant. Glad they're over there now. No, he, he wanted to see his kids. I mean, Susie was keeping the kids from him, but that's just the end of that chapter, you know. So when mm-hmm. Dolores Lynch, Tom's mother, found out about her son's separation from the bane of her existence, that would be Susie. Yes. Dolores gained the power of a thousand burning sons, gathered up her maid Helen, and went on a completely unannounced cross-country mission to stay at her son's house for the first time in nine years. Because remember, <laughs> yeah. she's been banned. Right. She called Tom outside of town to announce the glorious news of her surprise visit (laughs) and was met with a surprise of her own. Uh Tom didn't invite her to stay with him. Turns out Tom had already moved in his gorgeous young dental assistant, Kathy Anderson. Classic. (laughs) But Dolores was not having it. Not at all. (laughs) She muscled her way into the house and ordered Helen to start cleaning Tom's house Top to bottom. (laughs) And Tom, ever the one with a spine, let her come right in. (laughs) At the end of the visit, Dolores was cordial, but obviously talked trash about Kathy the entire way home. She was Uh like, not feeling that. Uh Uh-huh, uh-huh. So now we have Susie, a freshly single mom, her husband already moving in, his dental assistant before they're even divorced. Uh, She's totally broke, and she's stewing in her own juices in North Carolina. And 
it's time for her to start thinking about what she's going to do for the rest of her life and how she's going to support this family, get right. a job, right? She's, how old is she at this point? She's pretty, everyone's pretty young. Uh-huh. I mean, she's probably 30. Yeah. So according to the separation agreement that Tom signed, he was obliged to pay for any graduate degree that Susie wanted to get to get back on her feet. Mm. And Susie decided the best course of action before she even started graduate school was to move to Taiwan with her two small kids and learn Mandarin. Okay. So pretty wild. Pretty wild. There was some kind of plan, like... What? <laughs> I think there's some kind of plan, like, I honestly... Maybe this is a job and I'm just dumb, but it's uh-huh. like, learning Mandarin would help her get a job in the government in mm-hmm. China, where and she would conduct independent research in Taiwan. That was a big part of it for, like, her future grad school papers. So there was this whole, like, I'm going to learn Mandarin and do a bunch of independent research that I would use for my degree. Okay. Yeah, it sounds like a little bit like a harebrained uh, business plan, but Yeah, like more of an A to C move than an A to B move, you know? <laughs> it's like there's yeah. some some stuff missing in there. Yeah, it's um, sort of so it kind of sounds like the advice like a crazy uncle gives you when you're like moving to Hollywood or something. It's like, you got to learn Mandarin, yeah, you know what I mean? Yeah, that when my dad told me we had to start wearing crazy hats and he's dead serious <laughs> and then he said get on YouTube. Ah, great. Okay, so she had <laughs> never traveled before beyond North Carolina, Kentucky, and New Mexico. Mm-hmm. So she had never been abroad, uh, much less to a developing country. But she was sure studying Mandarin in Taiwan would give her the edge she needed in grad school to get an awesome job. And she wasn't going to let the kids stay with their father or her parents or, for God's sake, Dolores, right? So she's like, boys are coming with me. Mm-hmm. So against the advice and wishes of literally everyone in her life, three days after Christmas in 1979, Susie left for Taiwan with $1,800, six suitcases, and the boys in tow. A Taiwanese friend from New Mexico helped set her up with a a job teaching English Mm -hmm. and childcare, and then this small, cheap, fourth-floor walk-up apartment in this working-class area in Wano City. And Susie enrolled in the Mandarin Training Center of Taiwan Normal University in Taipei. I've been to Taipei. It's very cool. That's a kind of a unexpected move, I would say. I know. It really, I was like, what? Yeah, because she's been so highfalutin and superior this whole time, and now she's like living in a working class apartment and kind of putting in actual blood, sweat, and tears into something that she's apparently passionate about. Yeah, and I'll say, we're going to go through this. It did not go that well, but <laughs> but she really gave it the old college try. Uh-huh. She like pushed, right? Mm-hmm. So the apartment ended up being a little sketchy. The landlady didn't live there, but she reserved the right to come over and throw dinner parties a few times a week whenever she wanted. It sounds like another Dolores kind of situation. <laughs> I'm going to show up. And she kept the best bedroom. It was a three-bedroom apartment. Uh-huh. She kept the best bedroom vacant so the landlady could crash there whenever she was feeling it. So she's like, Annette's mine. Okay. And so Susie and the boys ended up splitting two tiny bedrooms um, they were allowed the use of their roach infested ramshackle kitchen with like a hot plate and living room uh, when those things weren't filled with landlady soirees. Okay. Uh, in kind of uh, either a wild snag in planning or a mis 
planning error. Susie's classes started just five days after she arrived in in Taiwan. Mm -hmm. Um, So at that point, her Mandarin is not good. Uh, She also had no idea how the city worked. She didn't know how to use the public transportation at all. She didn't even know how to shop in the grocery stores and the markets because they're just completely different um oh i'm getting it i'm having like a panic attack even <laughs> thinking about it. it's like one of those things where like i'm gonna do this great adventure yeah and this is gonna be amazing and i'm gonna reinvent myself and yeah. i'm bringing my kids and here we go and you show up and you're just d- and 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 that's your and suddenly this the reality is setting down upon you yeah yeah so yeah i know <laughs> the walls are closing in after two weeks things started going south uh-huh at the time Susie wrote I'll write, I'll read what she wrote. She said, quote, I've come to realize how out of control the situation was. Mm. I found myself being too demanding of myself and of John and Jim. I was expecting all of us to be superheroes and developed a lone ranger complex. I felt guilty. I was being especially unfair to John and Jim since this, that was her question mark, not Mm -hmm. mine. Uh, to John and Jim since this trip was for my career and to their advantage in that respect, but it was not something to which they felt a real commitment because they were like five years old. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They're children. I knew only too well that this trip had been my decision and mine alone. I felt totally respons- uh, total responsibility for success or failure for the first time, mm. and it was frightening. Mm. Other things she apparently didn't expect, the pollution, uh-huh. massive crowds, Packed buses, uh, the cleanliness of restaurants wasn't like remotely up to Susie's standards. And the only public bathroom she ever used uh, was the one at the Hilton. (laughs) And she was. She's talking about Albuquerque's a dump. She's like, let me move to a place I literally know nothing about and just expect it to be nice. Yeah, kind of. And and she was realizing, Uh remarkably, considering her choice of study, and in addition to Mexicans and Native Americans, she was also kind of racist towards Chinese people. <laughs> okay. So I talked a little bit about that in her writings. <laughs> she was like, just for the record, I'm not cool with them either. Yeah, I don't know. You know, you're just like, why Why do you want to study abroad? What? <laughs> just stay in North Carolina. Right. You know? Uh, okay. Well, but- she's clearly, I mean, she's losing it. She's lost her mind. And she's as a long put a time pin ago. in that. Yeah, think okay. about it. the the reason why this story is really fascinating to me, mm. and it's really excellent. And there's a reason why this book is 650 pages <laughs> yeah. because a lot of this is a slow burn. And so when you start to look at the totality of something, the scope of it, and you start to see, oh my god, did it happen back then? Yeah, yeah. You know what was that? Like it goes from this person's annoying because that's how we are, right? As people, like it's the frog boiling in water thing. We're like you're maybe in a relationship with somewhere where you think, oh, they're just being a jerk. And then like, you know, a couple of years later, you're like, this is feeling really (laughs) toxic. I'm I'm trapped. This is dangerous. Yeah, right. And I think like that is in a lot of ways, that is this story for multiple people within this story of like, at what point is it unacceptable? You know, like mm-hmm. there's a there's a space where people really accepted a lot as being normal. And then when you see how the thing progresses, you realize like, man, that piece that I accepted as normal was really not okay. <laughs> you know, yeah. it, it, it's just interesting to me. So anyway. Okay. <laughs> what? I don't know. I just think it's. 
she just is like <laughs> infatuated with this culture, wants to learn the language, and then gets there and realizes, like, oh, I'm actually racist <laughs> against them, also. Yeah, surprise. <laughs> She's, she contains multitudes. Uh, in February, yeah. Jim got bronchitis. Mm-hmm. So the landlady, when she was there, kept every window open, no matter what the weather was. She just felt like some my idea of like closed windows equals too many germs so mm-hmm. it was always open and cold right yeah. and so that's kind of what Susie blamed for the issue but mm. at any rate Jim is prescribed antibiotics they didn't work and by the end of the month Jim developed pneumonia oh and by this time, Susie had converted one of the small bedrooms into an office for herself to study. And she and the boys slept together in this tiny bedroom in one bed. So when Jim got sick, John and Susie took a nosedive as well. And Susie eventually, you know, Jim got so sick, he she had to take him to a hospital in Taipei where the doctors insisted that he needed to be admitted. And up until this point, so this is like how this ends, uh, Susie had been adamant that she and the boys would not be following the custom, the you know local custom, of throwing used toilet paper in trash cans rather than flushing them. So if anybody's gone anywhere where that's the custom, it's because of the pipes clog, right? Yes. But she was like, literally, I shall not. Uh-huh. <laughs> right? Okay. And there in the hospital room... While her kid is admitted, Susie overflows the toilet by flushing poopy (laughs) toilet paper instead of using the trash can. Uh And after being angrily lectured at, she pulled Jim from the hospital and went home. So this is what she wrote, her version. The toilet overflowed and I received a lecture in Chinese on why it was my fault. Mm -hmm. Since I did not understand much of what was said, a nurse who knew a bit more English than the others came in to explain. It seemed that I had committed the unpardonable sin, putting toilet paper in the toilet. Where, I asked, was one to put it? In the trash can, of course, where everyone else puts it. Their disgust at my ignorance was obvious and no one bothered to hide their feelings. That night, the last straw arrived in the form of tribes of roaches, which came out of the dresser drawers to feed off the sticky floors. I could not take any more and left the next morning. Back to North Carolina. Nope. Oh. Hospital fees. (laughs) (laughs) Hospital fees wiped out all of Susie's Mm -hmm. money, Mm -hmm. and everyone was still very sick. I mean, there wasn't, Jim still had pneumonia, and they were still both very sick. So, she did have a friend of a friend who had a nurse sister or something like that. She hooked her up with some antibiotics that actually worked for them and they made a recovery. But at that point, Susie had missed classes for like two weeks and she got there and basically had to drop out and transfer to a less advanced Mandarin class, mm-hmm. putting basically meaning that like if she wanted to accomplish what she had set out to do then you're like adding another six months to your time in in taiwan yeah so after this transfer she's still trying to hold on they are wiped out financially so she gets a job to earn some extra money but this makes her schedule insane so like she gets up at 5 a.m to get the kids to daycare and then gets on a packed bus to teach english and then another packed bus to go to classes at the mandarin center and then another packed bus to go to the grocery store and she'd go all the markets and pick up the kids and then you know cook all the meals from scratch on a hot plate 
clean everything, wash the boys, wash herself, and like study to midnight. And that's what she was trying to do. In March, just before Jim's fourth birthday. So if you think about how young these kids are. Oh, tiny, teeny. Yeah. Uh, Susie got word that her grandfather had died. And even with being in the slower class, Susie was failing her Mandarin classes. She just couldn't get it to stick. Mm -hmm. And then Jim got pneumonia again. Just like everything burns down, right? Right. So it all ended for Susie when the landlady unilaterally decided to rent out her larger reserved bedroom to just like a random Chinese couple. And Susie decided... I quit. <laughs> it's done, right? Yeah, she had yeah. other friends in the city. Um, so she was able to kind of like go into a safer place and like stay with these friends for the rest of her time. She decided she's going to quit language classes and let the boys enjoy the rest of their time in Taiwan and then concentrate all of her efforts on finishing her quote unquote research, whatever that is. <laughs> Her visa was going to expire at this point, but her famous aunt spoke to a North Carolina senator and the visa was magically extended. So everything was cool. They were going to museums and temples um, and like really enjoying the city. But then towards the end of her stay came more trouble. Susie was sending letters home and they started to change and she started talking about being targeted by the Taiwanese government. She said she'd been followed by these two agents everywhere she went. She was saying this couple that had moved into her old apartment mm-hmm. were actually government agents and that she, at that point, wasn't sure she would even be allowed to leave the country from what she understood and what she wrote. that She'd been told no one believed she had moved with her two little kids to Taiwan to just study for a few months, and they thought she was probably a spy. So okay. she writes this to her mother. There's more frantic calls to Judge Susie and the senator. And then in June, after six months total, Susie was finally on a plane home with the boys. So while no one knows the truth, Susie, for her part, never mentioned the espionage thing again uh. in her writings or anywhere else. And none of her friends in Taiwan had heard anything about some sort of Taiwanese government relentless attack against Susie. They're like, well, she really she- didn't say anything else. <laughs> okay. Uh, uh, they, I mean, part of me wants to think that that's true. But see, nobody knows. Right. You know, and I was listening. I mean, this is very anecdotal, so don't listen to me. But I was yeah. listening to a podcast about, you know, like sometimes stuff like that happens and obviously, you know, CIA, da-da-da, something. Yeah. something. You know? Anyways. <laughs> Uh, and uh, was the grandfather that died the grandfather we learned about in part one who started intelligence North Carolina? He died earlier. Oh, okay. Right. And I think 1951. So this is in the 70s. But it was uh, the, I think it was a Newsom, her dad's uh, father. Gotcha. Yeah. So, I mean, there's a million of these guys. That's a good question. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so Susie predictably came back to North Carolina looking very ragged. Uh, So the family sent her to her uncle, Dr. Klinner, just for a checkup to see if she was okay. Okay, the vitamin C man. Mm -hmm. And there, Klinner unfortunately diagnosed Susie with multiple sclerosis, MS. Okay. Uh, A really devastating diagnosis, but thankfully, 
Dr. Klenner had found a cure. This fool is just making stuff up. Those kids didn't have polio. Vitamins! <laughs> He's like, you have this horrible disease, and boy, do I have the cure for it. So, oh man, I'm sure you're curious about this dude. I certainly was. <laughs> Our uh, uh, Catholic from Pennsylvania? Yes. Uh-huh. Okay, so we are going to get into it, because this guy is fascinating. Also racist, if I remember correctly. Oh, Yes. <laughs> Oh, boy, is he. Uh, Okay, so here's the short Uh rundown. Fred Klinner Sr.'s parents were recent immigrants from Austria. He was born in 1907 in Pennsylvania. First generation Catholic and working class. Mm -hmm. Um, His mother was really into homeopathic herbal remedies. So, like, the Klinner kids were known to be, like, forging for stuff through the woods for his mother's medicine. Oh, sick, like old country stuff. Yeah, yeah. I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah. And in 1918, when the, everyone was dying of the flu like flies, you remember mm-hmm. that was like this huge, that's the big flu thing. Uh, Fred and his <laughs> that, sister. Uh, that old school pandemic. <laughs> Fred and his sister both caught the flu mm-hmm. and their mother treated them with an herbal tea and they fully recovered. And later as an adult, Fred Kleiner had the herbs that she used in the tea analyzed and found out it was chock full of vitamin C. Yeah, baby. <laughs> <laughs> Muriel just pointed at me and I did the most half-hearted slam dunk off her alley oop. That was I'm I really... trying to help you, man. You gotta you gotta be you. you Is know? that what it was? Help. <laughs> <laughs> so at first Fred yeah. wanted to be a priest, and his parents were pumped about it. So they scraped together enough money to send him to seminary school. And unfortunately, according to Klenner, the school ended up being basically a scam work camp. And he spent all his time doing backbreaking farm labor and maybe less like priestly study. Um, eventually, he caught uh, what? <laughs> I just, it could have been a backbreaking work study thing and a legitimate. Like, like seminary, thing. I know, yeah, it could have easily been that. That's why I said he said, you know? right? Yeah. Uh, but eventually, he did catch tuberculosis from a priest, and he had to come back home. When he came home, his mom mur- nursed Klenner for a year with her herbal remedies. And when he recovered, he decided at that moment, you know, he's, he loved his mom, big mama's boy. Yeah. And he was like, I want to be a doctor. So well, yeah, go scrounging. Do what she's doing. Sell it to the people. And I guess that's what he ends up doing. Okay, sorry. Keep going. That's okay. It's not what he ends up doing. It's a whole other thing. So he's the most academically inclined of his, you know, the kids in his family. And so college was good for him. He Mm -hmm. went, he got his degree in chemistry, and then he got into Duke University. Great school. um, And he went to the medical school there. And that's where he met the Sharp family daughter, Annie Hill. Right. Right. Who was there working as a nurse and the two fell in love and married in secret. Right. And if we remember, it's in secret because the Sharp family was not down with this guy. Right. So right. Fred's mom, Mary Klenner, was freaked that Annie wasn't like a natural born Catholic. And Annie's mom was freaked that her daughter had converted to Catholicism to marry this northern weirdo. (laughs) But what was done was done, and Mm -hmm. the couple eventually settled in Reedsville, North Carolina, near Annie Hill's parents, the Sharps. Uh, And this town was so not Catholic, didn't even have a Catholic church at the time. It was Uh, just like that was not what was going on. Right. So like we said before, off the bat, 
Fred Klenner was not particularly liked by the Sharp family. But regardless, his practice rapidly grew. Uh, he gave free services to local folks like policemen and firefighters and really deeply ingratiated himself into the community. That was like a, a tactic that he used to build his practice. Mm -hmm. And through that, he developed a really loyal following. And he never sent out doctor bills. That's the other thing that he did. He never sent out bills. So if you could pay after he gave you a treatment, then you paid. And mm -hmm. if you couldn't, you just paid him when you could. And if you never paid him, but you still needed care, he would never reject you. Hmm. So that's uh, decent unless he's just making up diseases that people... <laughs> For people. <laughs> so he, because of this, right? He, he was became trusted. Really popular, very fast. He had a really sweet, he was like a sweet patient doctor who mm -hmm. very much served his community. The only thing that gave people pause mm -hmm. with that sometimes he liked to talk about being into what the Nazis were doing in Germany. <laughs> And felt that Hitler was misunderstood. <laughs> ding, ding, ding. You know, I guess. So they're just like, hey, this guy's great. Yeah. But this seems maybe not that great. Uh -huh. And then mm -hmm. when the U.S. went to war against Germany, the Sharps, with their history, like they have this long history of military service, mm -hmm. felt like the Nazi sympathizing thing was socially awkward. Like not patriotic <laughs> enough. <laughs> Awkward. It's just so funny how like people what they like and don't like. Like, good. Don't talk about you know being into Nazis. Yeah. But then they're like, yeah, it's just like not patriotic. <laughs> okay. So after a while, uh, Klenner learned to keep some of that stuff to himself uh -huh. and out of like the public sphere. But his private offices were another ball game. So remember mm -hmm. this man. I just think this is so funny. So this man is born in Pennsylvania. He's uh -huh. Catholic. Uh, Austrian immigrant parents. His mom was this peaceful homeopathic healer who banned all guns from their home. And he wanted to be a, a freaking priest, right? Mm -hmm. Well, <laughs> the Nazi sympathizer thing wasn't his only red flag. As soon as Klenner hit the North Carolina scene, Klenner basically started kind of co like cosplaying as like, what seems to be his Yankee fantasy of like a Southern dude. Oh he, no. He like, became a huge gun nut. Like uh -huh. he didn't grow up with them and it wasn't a part of he his culture. Throwing some y'alls around. I mean, whatever it was, it's like he, he just kind of had this shift. So he became this huge gun nut. Right. Uh -huh. And also just like a die hard segregationist. Like mm -hmm. he would walk around, he'd say, you know, the wrong side of the civil war, like, like, the wrong side of the Civil War one, right? Uh -huh, like uh -huh. uh, euphemism for like being pro-slavery and like praise the KKK, even though everyone like, so you'd be like, oh yeah, the Ku Klux Klan, they're great. And, <laughs> yeah. But everyone knew that his personal family drama centered around him being a devout Catholic. And in case you didn't know, yeah. KKK is not down with Catholics either, <laughs> right. right? So it was just like very odd, like just this sort of like new personality that he developed when he moved down to Reedsville. It's just so weird to me. So even at the height of, like, even at his height of popularity, uh, why are you laughing? This guy's so popular. <laughs> you know, He's just like. So even at his height uh, of popularity, mm -hmm. Klenner's medical offices were basically small, shabby rooms above a drugstore. So often people who traveled hundreds or thousands of miles 
to Klenner for like miracle cures would be shocked at how run down his offices were. And they were just always like that. And isn't he a hoarder also? Yeah. Klenner's green walled offices were at the top of this very steep, dark, creaky wooden staircase. Mm -hmm. And the rooms were dusty. The plaster was stained with those yellow rings that come from rainwater that leaks to the ceiling. Mm -hmm. And he had distinctively marked segregated waiting rooms for whites and blacks, which he maintained up until his death in the 1980s. Yeah, so he was really... Really committed. Yeah, that cosplay thing. (laughs) (laughs) Over over the decades, Klenner's waiting rooms were stocked with gun magazines, along with pamphlets from far-right political organizations, libertarian groups, conservative Christian groups, and then he had a lot of stuff about the White Citizens Council, which was like, I don't know if you know about this, it's like a segregationist organization that was formed in opposition to the Brown versus the Board of Education ruling. So that in the okay. U.S., that was like the Supreme Court ruling that started mandating uh, integration in classrooms. Right. So it was this huge you know, backlash to that. And so he's all in. Yeah. Anyway, well, this group, they're they're considered like kind of like the less violent, classier alternative to the KKK. Mm -hmm. They're often referred to as the Uptown Klan, which I thought was just like, oh, my God. What a world. Almost a Billy Joel song. (laughs) Like it's a dystopian alternate universe, some different timeline. Uh, So that's like kind of, you know, it it starts out being like, oh, I'm far right. And then it's like you start going through the pamphlets like, whoa, this is getting real dark real fast, man. Yeah, it was like that old school YouTube algorithm. Yeah, right. Just radicalize people real fast. It's the paper version. Yeah, exactly. Just sit in the the doctor's office. Uh, By the 1980s, Klenner's personal office was like a hoarder's delight above the desks. (laughs) Racist hoarder's delight. (laughs) Above the desks and tables covered with all kinds of dusty junk, medical papers, scattered medications, whatever. The walls were covered in academic and medical certificates and then like whatever, clippings, pictures drawn by children, very old schedules, a huge George Wallace for president sign, a sign that read, there are no guns in this house, but then someone was mad and blocked out no with a marker. (laughs) So it read, there are guns in this house. Um, Okay, so he's got jokes. He's got jokes. Uh, Kleiner's shelves were crammed with a bunch of dumbass books about how like public education is communist indoctrination. Integration is a communist plot. Mm -hmm. Women's rights are ruining the world. Mm -hmm. Uh, Anyhow, free medical services and a gentle bedside matter (laughs) won the town over anyway. (laughs) Kleiner's practice grew and Annie Hill had a couple of girl children. So in the 1940s, Annie Hill's gums began to bleed mm-hmm. significantly. It was uh, The situation was escalating. It was becoming a medical problem. And her dentist made a plan to just pull all of her teeth. And Annie was fairly young at this point, probably around 30. And Dr. Klinner thought pulling all her teeth seemed too drastic and wanted to try something else. So Klenner knew of a study using high doses of vitamin C in chimps to correct bleeding gums. And the study had decent results. So he mega dosed Annie Hill with vitamin C and it worked. Mm -hmm. She stopped bleeding and she got to keep her teeth. And a fire was lit in (laughs) Dr. Klenner's brain. 
Pretty soon after saving Annie's <laughs> teeth, a man with viral pneumonia came to Klenner for help. Mm-hmm. Dr. Klenner treated the man with two big intravenous shots of vitamin C and... Uh, I don't know, Muriel's doing the finger pointing thing. He was cured. Oh. <laughs> His fever went down. He started eating again. He was healthy. Then... His daughters came down with the measles, right? So, mm-hmm. he, of course, he mega doses them with vitamin C. But up until this point, it's fairly unclear if Klenner knew, like, why these vitamin shots were having good results. Mm-hmm. He was just kind of playing medical jazz. He was improvising. So, <laughs> Klenner decided this time he was going to try to do, like, some sort of medical experiment. Like, use this as a clinical thing. So he injected his daughters with vitamin C just a little bit, and the measles went away. But then he stopped injecting them, and the measles came back. Mm -hmm. So convinced of his new godlike powers, Klenner dosed them for five straight days, and the measles disappeared. (laughs) Is that real? That's 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 it. In May 1946, this is also completely real and the wildest story. In May 1946, in the basement of the Annie Penn Memorial Hospital, where black women were sent to give birth away from the white patients in Mm -hmm. the segregated wing, in a rundown ward with just a hot plate and a kettle for boiling water, Klenner delivered four identical premature quadruplets to a deaf mute woman named Annie Mae Fultz. Okay. So this is really rare. About one Uh in 11 million births are natural identical quadruplets. Wow. And the Fultz quadruplets were the first black identical quadruplets on historical record Mm -hmm. and the first quadruplets to survive birth in the U.S. at the time. Whoa. Whoa. That's, yeah. Really like a pretty miraculous thing. Yeah. The girls only weighed two pounds a piece, and there's no equipment in this ward, so they had to be kept with warm with water bottles. They were basically like they used dressing, like God's dressing, to wrap the babies onto water bottles mm-hmm. to keep them warm, and they had to be fed with an eyedropper. And they survived. And Klenner undoubtedly attributed their survival to the vitamin injections he was giving <laughs> their mother before she gave birth. And then he gave them after the birth, right? Uh, can you, that's such a, that's such a crazy version of racism. I mean. Like we're, like I will We're do, not even done. Hold on. We're, okay. not even, we're not even halfway done with this. Just this okay, little section, okay? okay? okay, okay, okay. So then. Uh-huh. Klenner, for some reason, got to name the quadruplets. <laughs> Uh, He named them all Mary and then gave them middle names honoring his own female relatives. Okay. Uh, Klenner also, for some reason, was in charge of negotiating uh, these like offers that the family was getting for um, baby milk formulas. So there were different people trying to get these girls to be the spokespeople for this baby milk formula. And I'm not going to go super far into it it because I've read not enough to like really talk about it. But, you know, at the time the market for black parents like was untapped. Basically like black Americans were not using baby formula. Mm -hmm. And so there was this huge, you know, (laughs) millions and millions like dollar market that was basically untapped. And so a lot of people were trying to get these girls to kind of 
be their spokesperson, yeah, right? Right. So <laughs> Klenner was tasked with like as their agent. <laughs> oh, yeah. And yeah, just put him in charge of everything. You know? He negotiated a deal with pet milk baby formula to use the girls in advertisements. And in exchange, he negotiated that they had the medical bills paid for. Um, they had some farmland purchased in a new house. And uh, they hired a nurse and then gave a $350 a month stipend for like their su- medical supplies and, mm-hmm. and baby supplies and stuff like that. Is um, that deemed as like he did good for them? I don't want to. I think that comparatively, like other kids mm-hmm. who had like a similar spokesperson deals for like Gerber and stuff, like yeah. were millionaires. Uh-huh. You know, this was like a subs. They grew up in basically poverty. Like yeah. it's all subsistence level. Yeah. You know. Right. I mean, they didn't. They got a piece of property, which is great. They were living. They were sharecroppers. I think mm-hmm. they were living in abject poverty when this happened, and so it was definitely a step up. But I mean. I think the idea is that the amount of money they made for pet milk was like crazy. Right. Because they were so famous, right? Mm. Um, Clenner also set up a little glass enclosure for the family to put the babies in. So strangers could come at certain points of the day to the Fultz house to like view the babies and see these medical miracles. Mm -hmm. And by the time the one-year-old Fultz quads, as they were called, appeared in Ebony magazine, Dr. Klenner was nationally famous for delivering them. Wow. Which is just such a crazy journey for that man and that family. It's it's bizarre. (laughs) He's like, it's just this crazy, uh, like, I don't know. Just the idea of like, I will do everything to make sure these babies are born and that they survive except for uh, like take them upstairs where the equipment might actually make that a more realistic outcome. I don't know. You know, just none of this stuff really makes sense. It's just a crazy wild American journey. <laughs> uh, okay. Damn. So Damn. yeah. Right. Uh, so in 1948, Clenner published his first academic article on his miracle vitamin cure and in 1949, polio hit North Carolina in a big way. Mm-hmm. He diagnosed piles of new patients and began treating them with the old vitamin C, along with, obviously, Susie Newsom mm-hmm. and her cousin, Nancy, which we talked about last episode. Right. Klenner claimed all his patients recovered completely, but other medical professionals dismissed him. So Klenner had to stand by while many children went without vitamin C and were left ravaged by the disease. He apparently cured burn victims and arthritis sufferers with his magic vitamins. And in 1954, a best-selling book called Let's Eat Right to Keep Fit, which was kind of groundbreaking at the time, Mm. by Adele Davis referenced all of Klenner's accomplishments using a simple vitamin found in food. Like the idea that vitamins correlate to certain types of health, right? Yeah. That book really blew up his practice with people coming from all over the country to receive treatment. (laughs) This dingy little (laughs) (laughs) crazy radical racist (laughs) closet. I mean, if you know him from the pet milk stuff and the quads, you just (laughs) show me like, what the hell is going on? It's so wild. It's just wild. And I'm talking like, this is the 50s. He practiced successfully into the 80s. Right. So there was no, like, comeuppance. I mean, there kind of is, and we'll get into that. Okay. Um, Klenner's experiments were written about in books. 
from like Nobel Prize winning chemist Linus Pauling, right? And other pioneers in vitamin C mega dosing. There was like a whole vitamin C specific mega dosing trend. And people, mm-hmm. I think, still, there's lots of studies and people, I think, still use it therapeutically. I don't really know. But I mean, I take emergency if I'm feeling a little down and right, out. Right, right. You know what I mean? Right. This is specifically for like, <laughs> anyway, it's specifically for vitamin C, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the only vitamin that I think is worth anything, and I know nothing. So whatever he did worked. Like, it's still his, I feel like his legacy lives on. Right. Well, he got kind of freaky, and Uh, over the years, Klenner started adding other vitamins and also herbal home remedies and prayers. Uh, But mostly for a while, he just used vitamin C as a catch-all for bug bites, cancer, bacterial and viral infections, anything. Mm -hmm. In 1978, on the 50th anniversary of the discovery of vitamin C, the World Congress of Health gave Klenner a plaque at a fancy ceremony to honor his work in vitamin C. But despite all this celebration, (laughs) Klenner remained on the fringes of things in the medical community. Because none of his patients were actually sick. Basically, whatever you're thinking is probably (laughs) right. So the the shunning really, Uh, really started when Klenner made the jump from just vitamin C megadosing to like megadosing other vitamins and then expanding his treatments to include like all kinds of illnesses, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Dr. Klenner, you know, he didn't have anything to go on other than clinical observations. He didn't actually do any controlled experiments or even he keep a record of treatments and results. Mm-hmm. Like, he's just in his head. So he's like, that guy had this, I gave him that, and he's fine. Uh-huh. But he never wrote it down. Uh-huh. And vitamins like A and D, which Klenner was injecting and, like, megadosing, can actually accumulate in the body and become toxic in large doses. So doctors are like, yeah, well, you can't do that with like all the vitamins. And he was like, you just pee it out. They're like, no, you don't. So, you know. Uh And the other thing was, as you pointed out, other doctors in the area had a suspicion that Klenner was diagnosing people with things they actually didn't have treating them with vitamins and then declaring them cured, right? <laughs> yeah, in fact, yeah, yeah. Klenner had diagnosed so many people, including his son Fritz and Susie, with multiple sclerosis, that it seemed there was like this mysterious MS epidemic in the county. People were just like, whoa, <laughs> what's going on, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And when Klenner started curing his MS patients with mega doses of B complex vitamins, the National Multiple Sclerosis Society was like, no, bro, absolutely not. They like basically just came out of strip. was like, this is not real. This is not even vitamin B has nothing to do with MS. Like, <laughs> this is not. You got to shut it down, bro. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and in fact, years later, many people who Klenner had diagnosed with MS at the time and treated with vitamins were then verified to never have had the disease at all. Yeah. So with all of this, towards the end of his life, Klenner was relegated even further to the fringes of medicine. By 1980, 73-year-old Dr. Klenner was personally taking around 65 vitamin tablets a day (laughs) and then just straight up prescribing vitamins in prayer. He was just like, skip the antibiotics. Uh We're just going to keep going. Uh And that summer, in 1980, Klenner diagnosed his polio-surviving niece Susie with multiple sclerosis and began dosing her with B vitamins. Ooh, B this time. Yeah. Okay. 
So fresh from Taiwan and now newly diagnosed with a seemingly incurable disease, Susie regularly came in for massive doses of IV vitamin B complex, hoping for a miracle from her miracle-making uncle. That summer, Susie, despite seeming haggard, was absolutely full of energy. <laughs> Some might yeah, say yeah. she was frighteningly manic. <laughs> She enrolled in graduate school to study anthropology with dreams of working in China for the State Department. Her mom, Florence, definitely thought the anthropology thing mixed with six months in Taiwan was an extremely meandering path to some sort of money-making job that maybe it would be better to aim for an education that led to a more real and less imaginary job than like a Chinese-based cultural anthropologist for the State Department. <laughs> I feel like that's us trying to be like actor-comedian podcast I writers. I relate to it so much. <laughs> But Bob did it 100%. <laughs> you could just pour concrete, you know? You could just get a job. Bob okay. Newsom thought his daughter could do absolutely anything. Uh-huh. He was totally in it. Okay. So Susie still lived at home with her parents, and she couldn't afford anything else and was waiting on her divorce settlement that still hadn't been paid out. Meanwhile, Tom was broke. His practice wasn't making any money. Mm-hmm. And so the boys with his their mom in school and dad unable to visit apparently – they just spent most of their time with their grandparents, the Newsoms. Florence was down, but didn't like being called grandma. So she told the boys to call her Gigi for gorgeous grandmother. <laughs> That's cool. <laughs> John and Jim thrived at their grandparents' house at the oh, Newsom good. house. John came out of his shell. Oh, good. But Susie and Florence got back to it. They were bickering all the time. Florence was pissed that Susie didn't clean up after herself or her kids and expected Florence to do everything. And Susie was pissed because her mom was telling her to not act like she was some jerk kid who didn't clean up after themselves or contribute to the household. <laughs> <laughs> How dare you? How dare you treat me the way I behave? <laughs> so over the summer, Susie went to grad school, kept up with her MS vitamin treatment and started seeing a psychologist. So the psychologist at first, when he meets Susie, he thought, oh, she's this big bubbly bag of sunshine until he realized that the whole energetic happy thing was this intense act right Mm -hmm. she was anxious depressed john was hitting kids at school she didn't know what to do about it she was obviously under a ton of stress she had this impending divorce she's living with her parents she's fresh off a traumatizing trip to taiwan broke uh and had this obsession with keeping her children from Tom that had become a huge part of her life. And then also this new MS diagnosis. But the thing was, is that she wouldn't acknowledge she was struggling. So like they would have these talks Mm -hmm. and then she's like, yeah, but I'm fine. And he was just like, (laughs) (laughs) you know, you're obviously heading to some sort of breaking point. You need to figure out how to process this. Mm And he said the whole time he's talking to her in these sessions, she's just popping fistfuls of vitamins and pills. Like instead of processing stuff, Susie really had a one track mind during her sessions, right? It was either like ranting about Tom and Dolores, ranting about how Tom was like refusing to settle their divorce and give her her money uh, or ranting about how insufferable it was to live with her parents. She was basically saying like these big hype, hyperbolic things like um they're my parents are psychologically destroying my children you know like these big big Mm. ideas well that's kind of it's i mean i don't know it's just unfortunate because in that one letter she wrote when she was in taiwan she was at least saying like this is my fault like this is a self-imposed thing like she was 
Right, that's out the window. That's out that's the window. Gone. All that accountability and is And like gone. we're talking about the frog in the boiling pot of water, right? Uh-huh, At what uh-huh. point does that change? Right. Which I think if anyone needs what Muriel means by that is eventually the frog doesn't realize it's being cooked, right? I'm asking, actually. What are you yeah. talking about, frog in the boiling pot? That's You're like saying, a really famous metaphor. Right, but I'm just trying to make sure that yeah. I know what, yeah, I, you yeah, know, yeah. for all the people out there <laughs> that maybe are a little whatever. The frog is put in a pot. The yeah. pot's normal. You turn on the heat and it's not. it doesn't know it's being cooked. It's, if it's gradual enough, we just, right. it just doesn't know until it gets to the point where we're soup. Yeah. And that's a lot of, you know, we were at room temperature when she was biting people. Maybe it's the normal kid phase, uh-huh, right? And then right. we got to get a little warmer. And it's like she's in New Mexico and she's kind of crazy. Yeah. And then she starts being abusive. Mm-hmm. And then she goes to Taiwan. <laughs> and now she says her parents are psychologically ruining her children. Right. right? Like at what point is it, yeah. is it she's mad and stressed? Mm-hmm. And then when does it graduate beyond that, right? Yeah. So anyway, uh, meanwhile, Tom was patiently trying to see his boys. Um, he hadn't seen them since, you know, the beginning of his separation with Susie. But Susie had flat out forbade any potential visit. T- she was so hostile that Tom finally, he couldn't talk to her at all. So he finally hired a lawyer to help him untangle this mess of him just kind of not doing anything. Mm-hmm. So to get him leverage the first thing his lawyers had him do was officially file for divorce because neither of them had yet in September of 1980. And I don't really understand divorce proceedings, but essentially that got him the upper hand by filing first in some way, right? Okay. But he kept the filing secret in the hopes that Susie would let him see Jim and John for Christmas, which of course never happened. Mm -hmm. Uh, She never let him see him. So time keeps going by. And we go into the next year, and the summer of 1981 is super tense. So I'm not going to go through all the details of what happened, but essentially, like, there were just multiple negotiated custody deals that kept falling apart. And a big reason was is that anytime they'd reach an agreement, Susie would tell her lawyer she wanted more money. And then the whole thing would kind of, like, crumble. And so they were in this, like, really contentious battle for these kids and for Tom what he wanted more than anything and the reason why he was going to bat was because he wanted his kids during the summer so by the summer everything is just at this like kind of like frantic peak and that summer Susie John and Jim were at this family sharp family get together and John gets in this like mild little kid fight no big deal with another kid at this party and in front of everyone Susie just snaps. And this is the first time her family has seen her do this. Mm -hmm. She starts screaming at John. She starts chasing him around and hitting him in the head. And this kid is maybe six at this point. And, you know, her family tries to calm her down. And she just started screaming, you know, he has to learn. He has to learn over and over again. Just completely irate. One family member was so shocked that he was adamant somebody needs to contact Tom and let him know like something is is wrong. Mm -hmm. And Susie's cousin Nancy, her polio buddy, basically shot this guy down because she says it's not proper to go against family. So it's very similar to what happened in Albuquerque Mm -hmm. where people are witnessing something and then just like not saying anything out of propriety. right? Right. 
in September 1981, a year after it was initially filed, Susie was finally served Tom's petition for divorce. A double gut punch as it also requested that custody and divorce settlements be settled in New Mexico rather than North Carolina. Mm-hmm. So in their original home as a couple rather than where Susie took the boys, which would put Susie at a very clear disadvantage in the proceedings. Then, just two weeks after that, Tom's hotshot lawyers filed a request that Susie be held in contempt for keeping the boys from their father. And around Christmas time, through the help of his lawyers, Tom was finally able to see John and Jim for the first time in two years. Mm -hmm. And... It's great that Tom is finally trying to fight for his kids, but I'm, <laughs> I don't know. I feel what? like I'm going to be a little judgy. Okay. With all of these. Go for it. You've, you've earned it. I don't know. I mean, I've read a book. Well, yeah. all these filings were sending Susie into this tailspin, thinking she's going to lose her kids. At this point, Tom was actually more taking a stand than actually trying to get primary custody of his kids. So despite Susie acting insanely hostile and erratic, Tom said later he didn't want primary or full custody at all. He just wanted the boys for an extended summer visit in New Mexico where he planned to work and then have Kathy Anderson take care of the boys. Mm -hmm. So he claimed he couldn't afford any other custody option, which is fair. But in 1981, Kathy Anderson was living at his house, had quit her job, gone back to school, and Tom was fully funding her college education uh-huh. and all of her living expenses. Right. So how can I he don't care know. for his kids when he has to care for his girlfriend? I don't know, right? Yeah. I don't I don't know what it's like to be in a position like that, but it seems like <laughs> maybe this is more of a case of priorities than money. Like right. it's literally the same year. He's like, there's no way I can do this. I yeah, can't. I have afford. a hot girlfriend I and she's so young. <laughs> you think like, I can afford kids right now? He's like, Why to South Carolina to see them? But he's like paying for all this other stuff. It's like, okay, buddy. Anyway, after a grueling custody battle that spilled deep into 1982, custody was finally decided in North Carolina, not Albuquerque, giving Susie the home advantage. On November 22nd, 1982, Tom was granted one month of custody during the summer each year in New Mexico. Every other Christmas, spring break, and then the ability to see his kids in North Carolina whenever he wanted with two weeks written notice. Mm -hmm. And Tom would have to foot the bill for any and all travel related expenses, which was a big uh, point of contention for him. Right. Because he's got... You know, he's got to keep her, his girl's hair did, you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it is very expensive. Part of, we're not going to get way into it, but part of it mm-hmm. is like Susie demanded that an adult accompany the boys on every flight, which means that he was having not just to pay for the boys to fly, but he would have to pay right for, three for her to fly out uh-huh. and back uh-huh. and then for her to fly out and back again. Right. Um, so it was it was pretty pricey, but it's still, you know, we are, we already picked our bone with that. Yeah. Okay. We're done ju- judging Tom for now. <laughs> so both sets of lawyers thought the ruling was fair. Both Tom and Susie were absolutely furious. <laughs> Tom, because he felt the sharp family status in North Carolina unfairly influenced the court. Yeah. And he didn't get as much time in the summer as he wanted. And he was mad about needing to pay all the travel expenses. Yeah. 
And Susie, because after all these court battles and Tom finally like standing up and like demanding time with his kids, she was convinced at this point that Tom was actually trying to kidnap her children. Okay, some more paranoia sneaking back in there. So after the 1982 custody decision, Susie completely banned Dolores from talking to the boys on the phone entirely and generally became much more overprotective of the boys. She always kept them in their sight. She didn't let them play outside and became increasingly paranoid about someone snatching them. In early 1983, Susie was back to studying around the clock. Susie had dropped out of her graduate program a year prior because she said her anthropology professors were idiots. Mm -hmm. Um, But then she switched over to business, so she was still in grad school. But despite the fact that Susie was now studying something a little more practical, her academic fervor was making her mother, Florence, very nervous. The other thing that was making Florence nervous were the secret late night visits that Susie was getting from her weird first cousin, Fritz Klenner. (laughs) The son of the doctor. The son of the doctor, who we will learn more about (laughs) in the next episode. Thank you so much for listening to Muriel's Murders. Muriel did all the research. She read this whole damn book. Then she wrote up this incredible script. I have all the index cards to prove that she (laughs) rearranged the information to give it to you guys in exciting, new, original ways. And she obviously did all the talking for the most part (laughs) while I did all of the joking, reacting, recording, editing, post-production, and whatever that stuff is. This podcast was recorded in a closet at my parents' house. To help support the podcast and to unlock exclusive episodes please sign up for our patreon at www.patreon.com slash muriel's murders if you're enjoying this saga it would be amazing for muriel and i if you shared it with people in your life like you could text it to them through your phone you could post about it online it would be great for us your support keeps us inspired and motivated other great ways to help the show include leaving us a review on apple Podcasts, rating us on spotify connecting with us on social media plus we love hearing from you our dms are open and you can email us you can find all that information and the links in the show notes of this episode or you can visit www.muriel'smurders.com our music is by mario castellini find him on instagram at castellini beats that's it see you guys later all right part three is here for you right now